Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Welcome to Most Foul. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, with my full-throated, full, 100% laugh after you said that. (laughs) Welcome to Most Foul Podcast, where we take pride in our authorship. (laughs) (laughs) Very much, very much. (laughs) Howdy, how are you? I'm just fine and dandy. Except for knowing that we got our first bad review on Apple Podcasts, which is what we're joking Mwah. about now. <laughs> but honestly, I take it as a sign that we've made it. We have a hater. I also partially took it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be mad. No, I moved past it fairly quickly. I mean, I did a little sleuthing and that account only leaves really mean reviews on podcasts. Yeah. So you were pretty hurt by it, but it was mostly about me sucking. Well, she. what does it mean when they don't mention you at all? <laughs> is that good or is that bad? <laughs> well, what's funny is we're joking about vocal fry because they start out by criticizing my vocal fry. Which we've talked about off pod before, and I've asked what what to do about it. Well, and I said that's ableism. <laughs> Absolutely, and come to find out, it is. It's about not taking deep enough breaths and not forcing enough air through your vocal cords. So I'm <sighs> taking deep breaths today, <laughs> <laughs> and I just bought a breath lung exerciser which Andrew already has. <laughs> yeah, that's just a different thing. <laughs> but also, I took a weird... So I'm not going to read the whole thing. I mean, it's not that long. You can go read it if you want to. But the first sentence says, someone with a vocal fry, which is me, I, I acknowledge it, literally reading a freshman-level essay. Now, here's how warped I am, okay? I was like, <laughs> that's really good because... Oftentimes, I'm not able to do any research or scripting, and I'm kind of making shit up as I go. So if I'm making shit up at a freshman essay level, I I take pride in that. I'll be honest. Yeah, and I did read that as freshman in college. Well, yeah, that goes without saying. Although freshman in high school, yeah, no, definitely college. (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to deny it my freshman level essays in high school were impeccable (laughs) (laughs) certainly I was much smarter when I was 19 than I am now that's absolutely 100% factual (laughs) yeah I am definitely wiser now but I was smarter then (laughs) yes 100% so I'm taking measures on my vocal fry but I don't even know. I just have to breathe deeper. Well, every voice is unique. Yeah, I like And there's my nothing voice. wrong with it. I like my voice, but also half giggling. I never half giggle. It's just not, well, no. work meetings. I, I half giggle at work meetings or for social situations, but not here with you. Well, I literally have to edit the volume down on our laughs. laughs 
<laughs> because they spike. <laughs> but also, and the last thing I'll say on this before we move on to other scintillating banter is the review is pretty terrible, but the person, which I'm going to say is a she just because of the username, gave us two stars. What is that? I mean, it's still kind of a compliment that, like, <laughs> it's not the worst. <laughs> but the description, I hate to read what this person would say about a one-star podcast. That would be... Their, re- their reviews were pretty mean. I <laughs> I did some snooping. <laughs> and then on my end, it's just, like, not even a mention of me. <laughs> like, I do exist. <laughs> I, it, like, it could be mean, too. Well, you were the two stars, apparently. I was just like, so I don't exist. <laughs> what has happened? You're the two stars. You are the two stars. But anyway, we're honestly not taking it personally. This is just for fun, but... Well, except the vocal fry. But again, work in progress. And we won't make it a habit of reading bad reviews. Will we not? But we will read five-star <laughs> reviews Absolutely. on the pod. And we'll give you a shout-out. And we'll say what a wonderful human being you are, because obs. Yeah. So, you know, just if you want to counter that one, or if you just want your shout-out, we'll do it. Absolutely. Get on there. Do it. Uh, Yeah. What else? I don't know. A time vacuum has literally existed where no time has passed between our last recording and I have nothing to talk about. (laughs) But honestly, outside of work, you're the last person I talked to. So (laughs) a week ago. I truly, I mean, it rarely works in the good favor. But when I woke up yesterday, I was like, how is it Thursday? I know. I know. It's true. Time keeps on Ticking, ticking, dripping, something, something. I wrote a song about time. Yeah. And how it yeah. makes no sense. Time is a coming and it won't slow down. He'll steal your youth. He'll wear you down till your knees start creaking and your tears flow fast. Your heart stops beating better make it last. Cause second chances are for the young. We're getting older, but we're just as dumb. Another year spinning around the sun. Another year done. And when it's done, you can't get it back. You can't get it back. <laughs> oh, I like it. Are you going to do a full version and release I it? I should. It's a full song. Like, I've written multiple verse. Like, it's a full song. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know, produced up the way you do with some of your songs. Oh, I guess I should. I've been so lazy about that. I just write songs. I'm like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that one. It's, I mean, it's got a little country twinge to it, yeah. so I don't know where that came from. I like but. it. I said I like I like that one as if I don't like your others. I didn't mean it that way. I just meant I really like it. Two stars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're not going to hold a grudge. So the, no. the high point of my week this week was amazing. I had a meeting online, or not online, over the phone with my new accountant, and he said the biggest compliment I've received in a long time, which is, you don't sound 50. Ooh. And it was unprompted. It was relative to 
maximum retirement investing levels. FYI, folks, they go up when you turn 50. So he said, well, you don't sound 50. So, you know, blah, 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 I'm out. And I was like, well, actually, (gasps) surprise, I am. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the high point of my week. I've been doing adulting. Mm-hmm. I'm in the process of figuring out how to make a will. Mm. And I've been making the choices of like, do I want to be cremated? Do I want to give my body to science? Mm. <laughs> I was talking to my mom and I was like, well, if I'm cremated, I don't know what to do with the ashes. You could just throw them away, I guess. <laughs> He's like, uh, I'd bury them. <laughs> uh, conversations that you have now at your ripe old age. Uh, can 35. I have your can I have your lung exerciser? <laughs> yeah, I can leave that for you. <laughs> you. Legally, no one has to follow like things in your will that you request they do. Yeah. But you can still put them in there. Like what to do with your ashes. Oh, no. Stuff like that is a little more binding. But like if I was like, I want you to call all of my exes and tell them that this is their fault. You don't actually have to do that. (laughs) Yeah, I think you have to pay a lawyer to be your executor if you want that kind of thing. (laughs) But yeah, I... Just trying to understand financial literacy Mm -hmm. is so hard and confusing. I know. It's crazy. Well, here I am 50, and for the first time in my life, I make a tiny bit more than what I need to survive, so I actually can invest in a future time when I may not have to work for a living. Uh, The dream. I know. I know. It's amazing. So this episode is one of our, I don't know if we, I don't think we gave it a name. (laughs) No, I don't think we did. Uh, We're taking, we're looking at cases that have a small impact on pop culture. So not a case that would traditionally fill our full format. Mm -hmm. So I have a case that I'm going to talk through in the culture and so does Kirsten. Mm -hmm. So should we jump in? I think so. I like when we do these little palate cleanser episodes of a sort. That sounds gross in relation to true crime, but... Well, it's also... Mine is really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know necessarily about cleansing the palate. <laughs> Metaphorically. Okay, why don't you go first? Okay. So today I'm going to tell you about the murders of Haley Kiefer and Nicholas Brady. Like I said, this is kind of a scary and unusual story that I'm going to do my best to explain. Okay. So, sort of in the holiday season, on Thanksgiving Day in 2012, so 18-year-old Haley and her 17-year-old cousin Nicholas broke into the home of 64-year-old Byron David Smith in Little Falls, Minnesota. Mm. Obviously, breaking into someone's home and robbing them is not okay. Mm -hmm. Should not be done It also does not come with a death sentence. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately for them, Smith was lying in wait. 
According to Smith, prior to the murders, he had been burgled at least half a dozen times over the preceding few months, which may or may not be true. Okay. What we know for sure is that he had only reported one previous burglary to the police. And investigators found evidence of two potential previous burglaries in his detached garage. Okay. Um, that he didn't even have knowledge of. Right. And so he might have been burgled once. Okay. Among the items that were stolen were a few thousand dollars in cash, his dad's prisoner of war watch, coins from a collection, and a chainsaw. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously your dad's watch, that's a pretty fucked up thing to steal. Yeah. But he began routinely wearing a holster with a loaded gun inside of his home, as well as stashing bottles of water and granola bars in his basement. Mm. He also installed a security system to protect himself. But this wasn't just about protecting himself and his belongings. Mm -hmm. He was out for revenge. Mm. So Thanksgiving, the night before, Smith drove his vehicle down the road, parking it in front of a neighbor's house. After about an hour, Haley and Nicholas broke into his home. Mm-hmm. So like I said, he put in surveillance systems. So video surveillance captured the teens casing the property prior to the break-in. Okay. So he knew they were casing him. He purposefully hid his car. Right. And was waiting. Ugh. By his own account to police, Smith had been visiting neighbors when he saw Haley, whom he suspected was responsible for the previous burglary, driving past his home. Mm. He commented that he needed to get ready for her and went back home. And this is where it gets horrifying. Mm -hmm. So once home, he turned on a recording device, removed the light bulbs from the ceiling lights, and positioned himself in a chair that was obscured from the view. Mm. He heard the window upstairs break and Nicholas climb in, all of which was captured and recorded on audio. Okay. Smith then waited in silence for 12 minutes uh-huh. until Nicholas began descending into the basement. Smith shot twice under the stairs and then once into his head after he fell to the bottom of the stairs. Uh. Smith then made taunting remarks to, remarks to Nicholas's body wrapped it in a tarp, and dragged it into another room. (gasps) He went upstairs, and 10 to 15 minutes later, he ran back down to the basement, reloaded his weapon, and took his previous position in the chair. Minutes later, Haley entered the home and could be heard calling her cousin's name. As she made her way down the stairs, Smith shot her. Wounded, she fell, and Smith can be heard on the recording sarcastically saying, quote, Oh, sorry about that. End quote. Followed by Haley saying, oh my God, very quickly. Smith shoots her again multiple times in the torso, in the midst of which she's screaming, oh my God, and once next to her left eye. He called her derogatory names, dragged her into the other room, tossing her body on top of the cousin, uh, and shot her one final time under the chin. Jesus. Audio of this horrific event and some video, not in the basement, but of them breaking in, was recorded by Smith's security system. He did not immediately report the deaths to the police. He waited until the next day to tell the police, claiming he didn't want to bother them on Thanksgiving. Oh, my God. 
Morrison County Sheriff Michael Wetzel had acknowledged that Nicholas and Haley were there to burgle Smith's residence. Nicholas's sister claimed he stole drugs from her home earlier that year, a case that was still under investigation. Um, Evidence recovered from the car driven by Nicholas was linked to a burglary of the residence of a retired teacher the night before. But again, none of that compares to the brutal, premeditated murders that Smith committed. Yeah. So Smith's statements to the police described delivering the fatal blows to the head of both teens after he shot them on the stairs and they lay wounded on the basement floor. In his statement, he said that Haley had let out a short laugh after she fell down the stairs, saying, quote, if you're trying to shoot somebody and they laugh at you, you go again, end quote. Uh... But that's just a fucking lie. He recorded the audio where she was just crying and saying, oh, my God. Yeah. So in police interviews, he acknowledged, quote, firing more shots than I needed to, end quote, and that he fired, quote, a good, clean finishing shot, Uh, end quote. What the fuck? Yeah. As you can imagine, this case set off a ton of legal discourse about the Castle Doctrine, which allows homeowners to defend their homes with legal force. So, legal analysts have stated that the initial shootings most likely would have been justified under Minnesota law, but the subsequent shots were not justified once any threat had been removed. Sheriff Wetzel said, quote, The law doesn't permit you to execute somebody once a threat is gone. End quote. Uh, Hamlin University School of Law professor Joseph Olson said, quote, I think the first shot is justified after the person is no longer a threat because they're seriously wounded. The application of self-defense is over, end quote. In addition to his home surveillance, Smith also recorded at least six hours of audio on a digital recorder in the basement. Uh, prior to the break-in, he's heard saying, quote, in your left eye, end quote, I realize I don't have an appointment, but I would like to see one of the lawyers here, end quote. So he was practicing. That's nuts. Yeah. The prosecution noted that Haley was later shot in the left eye by Smith and alleged that the other statement is a rehearsal of what he would say after the shooting, an indication that he knew he would soon need an attorney. Oh, my God. So after the shootings, he made numerous statements, including, quote, I am not a bleeding heart liberal. I felt like I was cleaning up a mess. Not like spoiled food, not like vomit, not even like, not even like diarrhea. The worst mess possible. And I was stuck with it. In some tiny little respect, I was doing my civic duty. If the law enforcement system couldn't handle it, I had to do it. I had to do it. The law system couldn't handle her and it fell into my lap and she dropped her problem in my lap and she threw her own problem in my face and I had to clean it up, end quote. I mean, this sounds exactly like those serial killers who say that they're cleaning up the trash by killing sex workers. It is so fucked up. So Smith's recorded statements, the evidence indicating he'd planned the shooting, along with the excessive number of shots fired, led to him being charged with second-degree murder. He was initially charged with two counts of second-degree murder, but in April of 2013, he was indicted on two counts of first-degree murder. Bail was later set for $50,000, which he posted. Hamlin Law Professor Emeritus Joseph Daly commented that the laws surrounding the case were dividing the Little Falls community, saying, quote, In some states, somebody breaks into your home and you're allowed to shoot them dead, period. 
end quote. He also pointed out that other states like Florida have a stand-your-ground law, but Minnesota has what's known as a reasonable person doctrine. Adding, quote, If a reasonable person would see if you are in fear of great bodily harm or death, that's our statute. It comes down to, what would a reasonable person see in this situation for Mr. Smith? End quote. On April 21st in 2014, Smith's jury trial commenced in Morrison County, and just eight days later, so April 29th, he was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder with premeditation and on two counts of second-degree murder after three hours of jury deliberations. Mm. He was immediately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The audio recordings were named by the jurors as the biggest influence on their decision, obviously. Mm-hmm. One of the 12 jurors said following the trial, quote, That was the most damning piece of evidence in my mind. That audio recording of the actual killings and the audio recording of Mr. Smith's interview immediately after his arrest pretty much convinced me that we were dealing with a deranged individual, end yeah. quote. Yeah, that's crazy. And he recorded it. <laughs> but that's what I mean. He was like a true believer. He really was deranged like he really thought what he was doing was right somehow possibly i also took it the other way like he recorded it because he wanted to keep it maybe that's just speculation yeah i mean it does sound a lot like those serial killers who believe that they're doing the world a service by killing sex workers and they definitely take trophies and relive so true Ugh. after his conviction and sentence to life in prison he appealed to the minnesota supreme court on march 9th 2016 they affirmed the conviction and sentence in november 2018 his attorneys filed a federal appeal citing a brief closure of the trial to the public as grounds for smith's conviction to be set aside uh, the federal district court denied relief and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit Court agreed. On November 20th, 2020, Smith's lawyers filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court, which was denied on March 22nd of 2021. He's currently 74 years old, incarcerated at Oak Park Heights Prison. Now, it may not to you, but if this case sounds weirdly familiar, but you can't quite put your finger on it, you may have seen the 2016 horror movie don't breathe Mm. this movie was produced and directed by fede alvarez co-produced by sam raimi who Mm. incidentally we chatted about last episode (laughs) yeah Uh, as well as rupert tapper and co-written by alvarez and rodo saigues it premiered at south by southwest in march 2016 theatrically released in august and it grossed over 157 million received largely positive reviews from critics who praised the performances, direction, screenplay, and tense atmosphere. Mm. This movie terrified me. It is brutal and scary and fucked up. Yeah. The basic premise is that three people break into a blind man's house to steal $300,000 that they've been tipped off about. Mm-hmm. And so once they, in the movie, once they learn that he's blind... They're like, oh, this is going to be easy. We're going to break in and rob him. Mm -hmm. What they don't realize is that he's a highly trained veteran who brutalizes the shit out of them and has a kidnapped woman in his basement who he has impregnated Uh. because she got in a car crash that killed his daughter 
and he was going to make her give him a new one. Uh... Real fucked up. <laughs> so it's horrific. I had no idea it was connected at all to a real story. It was just a super scary movie. Ugh, I, home invasion movies are not for me because that's yeah. a true fear. I like horror and like the ghosty realm. <laughs> On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an 88%. The critical consensus reads, quote, Don't Breathe smartly twists its sturdy premise to offer a satisfyingly tense, chilling addition to the home invasion genre that's all the more effective for its simplicity, end quote. Audiences gave it a B plus on CinemaScore, which goes from A plus to F, so pretty solid. Mm-hmm. And It was so successful that in November of 2016, the writer-director announced a sequel was in the works. Don't Breathe 2, released in 2021, grossed $53 million, making it a moderate success, and had more mixed reviews. But even still, a third movie's coming. And so that is the awful story of the murders of Haley Kiefer and Nicholas Brady and the small but growing pop culture that's been created as a result of the case. That's insane. Horrific. It's, ugh. Uh, the, for some reason, the detail about parking his car down the street, just, that's the part that, I mean, it's all horrific, but that detail just, ugh. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> this is a bad one. Ugh. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, we have such a judgmental society, I think, that the narrative so often is. And had he not been a completely deranged psycho, probably would have remained. Well, they were doing something they shouldn't have done, and so they got what they deserved. But holy shit. I mean, they were kids, and they did something stupid. If I got a bullet to the head for every stupid thing I did when I was a teenager, I'd be dead a hundred times over. Yeah, and like in our carceral system, crimes have punishments that are societally at least somewhat agreed upon. (laughs) And like the punishment for breaking into someone's home and stealing something is not death. Right. It's the same thing for when like the police kill anybody. Yeah. It's like, even if they were doing a crime, the punishment wasn't death. Yeah. Kind of downer. <laughs> <laughs> well, everything we do here is a downer, is it? Except for D.B. Cooper, our one, <laughs> our one and only. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. Well, that was something. You're right. Yeah, I love peppering in some of these episodes because we can never do this case because the pop culture is just so limited. Right. Well, I have one today for my side of things that we could definitely never do because there is no culture around this one other than some coincidental things that happened along the way. But I am going to talk today about a case that has historically been known as the Lady of the Dunes. And so this is a crime that happened in the 70s, um, right here, pretty close to where I am in Massachusetts, and involves a, until recently, unidentified victim. 
And so it had this name, Lady of the Dunes. So on July 26, 1974, a 12-year-old girl was playing in the beach area of Provincetown, Massachusetts. If you don't know the area, Provincetown is on Cape Cod at the very end, um, so remote in terms of Massachusetts. It's way out at the end of the Cape. And it just happens to be a really well-established vacation area, but also very popular with LGBTQIA and kind of a hoity-toity retreat for the wealthy and famous. Yeah, that's the clear side is what I know about P-Town. Yeah, for sure. And so I was thinking, is it kind of the East Coast San Francisco? Which is hard to say because it's a tiny place and a beach community, but it's it's a gay mecca on the East Coast. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think so. So on this day in July, this girl is playing in the dunes along... Um, Provincetown, and she happened to be on a walk with her dog, and the dog wandered off from her, and so she's following, trying to get her dog back, and she realized what the dog had been drawn to, it looked to be a dead deer in the dunes, and so as the girl got closer, she realized, though, it was not a deer, it was a human, it was human Mm -hmm. remains. And the positioning of this was very close to the nearby road, but it seemed obvious that some days had passed and there had been some animal activity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so the girl reports this to the authorities, um, and they came immediately, obviously, and they were able to find, in spite of kind of how well-trafficked this area was, they were able to find some footprints near the body um but again animal activity and the num- the amount of time that she had been outside um made investigating a little bit difficult the victim was positioned face down on a beach blanket but there was no sign of any struggle and so initially the theory was that the victim had been killed someplace else and brought there or had been killed in that spot, but killed as she was sleeping. I feel awful for that girl. I know, right? Well, I mean, obviously awful for the victim, but just yeah, the walking your dog. Yeah, and 12. So the woman was wearing a bathing suit and had a pair of jeans and a bandana nearby. And she had long auburn or red hair that was pulled back. And some other identifying features were noted. They took down her kind of physical features. And she had some unique dental work, which they were able to identify as being done in the, quote, New York style of dental work. But they also noticed that several of her teeth had been removed. And also, both of her hands and one of her forearms was missing. And so, right away, there were some thoughts of this potentially being some kind of mob thing. There were efforts made to make identification difficult, essentially. 
They believe that the victim had died of strangulation, but the attack was so intense that the woman was almost decapitated. And there was also damage to the side of her head with some kind of tool that they thought might be a military entrenching tool. And they believe that ultimately the head injury is what proved fatal of all of her very severe injuries. There were also signs of sexual assault, and they believed that the sexual assault had happened post-mortem. There were no leads initially, although there were many people put on the investigation of this crime. It shocked the small community at, at the far reaches of the Cape. But the woman in October of that year was buried locally in Provincetown, and there really were no substantive leads even on who she was. They were unable to identify her. So there were no fingerprints to go on. The dental work, they had an idea of kind of where it had happened, but because teeth were missing, they weren't able to um, get a full profile. And then, of course, without some kind of identity to go on and match to, you can't, there's no database of, you know, teeth, yeah. right? So... The case really went cold fairly quickly. In 1979, investigators commissioned a face investigators commissioned a facial reconstruction of the woman. And a composite was made from this and distributed. But still no leads came in. In 1980, investigators had her remains exhumed just so that they could kind of look things over with fresh eyes and see if there was any new evidence that they might explore. In 1987, a Canadian woman told a friend that she had seen her father strangle a woman in Massachusetts around 1972. And the friend reported this to the authorities and it made its way to the network of law enforcement in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And Provincetown police had tried to locate the woman, the Canadian woman, and they were unsuccessful. So it was just kind of a word of mouth thing that got back to law enforcement, but they were never able to find that woman. Yeah. Around the same time, another woman said that the reconstruction that had been made looked like her sister who had disappeared from Boston in 1974 and so investigators followed all of these leads, no matter how kind of random they seemed, because they were just desperate to find out who this person might be. That's always step one in solving any crime, typically. Investigators also followed an interesting lead about a missing criminal whose name was Rory Kessinger, and she would have been about 25 at the time of the crime or at the time of the murder. And she had broken out of jail around that time. And so authorities saw some resemblance between her mugshot and the reconstruction. But they did DNA testing on Kessinger's mother, and it didn't match the victim. So one after another, various missing women were postulated to be the Lady of the Dunes. And mm -hmm. whenever they tested DNA or matched up other kind of incidental information, it always came up negative. In August of 2015, a really interesting 
I don't know if you would call it a lead, but a real interesting line of inquiry came up. So Joe Hill, the son of author Stephen King, had just read a book called The Skeleton Crew, How Amateur Sleuths Are Solving America's Coldest Cases. And so he has this kind of going through his mind and you know, this is around the time that the Golden State Killer case was getting a lot of publicity and McNamara was diving into that crime. And of course, online sleuthing and true crime was really um, seeing a surge of interest. And so during that time, he just happened to be re-watching the movie Jaws. And he was watching the film's 4th of July beach scene. Now... Jaws was shot in and around Provincetown and was shot in the summer of 1974. So as he's watching this, Joe Hill spots a woman in the crowd in the background of Jaws who happens to be wearing a blue bandana and jeans similar to those items found near this victim. And so he reached out to authorities and speculated that perhaps she might have been an extra in Jaws and had somehow met her untimely death during that period. Nothing came out of that or any of these other leads. But recently, and why this case may sound familiar to you if it does, is because in October of 2022, the FBI field office in Boston announced that after all of these years, almost 50 years, the victim, the Lady of the Dunes, had been identified. Which is wild. Isn't it amazing? So we now know that the victim, her name is Ruth Marie Terry. And of all places, she is from Tennessee. And she had ties to Michigan, California, and Massachusetts. And so when this identification came up, there weren't a lot of details about it, except that FBI had used investigative genealogy, the same kind of technology and approach that investigators had used to crack the Golden State Killer case. Mm-hmm. From there, once they had an identity for the victim, they started piecing together her life to see why was she there, what was she doing, who was she with, and they could start re reconstructing this time in her life for some mm -hmm. hint of who may have done this. So almost immediately, they learn that Terry had been married to a man named Guy Moldavin. And Guy was not a great guy. The two had married in February of 1974, so only a few months before the remains were found. And he was known by various names, including Raul. And Terry was also known by various names, including Terry Marie Vizinia, Terry M. Vizina, and Terry Shannon. But Guy was already suspected at that time in the 1960 murders of his second wife, Manzanita, and her daughter, Dolores. Oh and my that, God. Yeah. That happened in Seattle. And he 
fled Seattle after those crimes and was arrested by FBI and, and charged and the whole, the whole nine yards, but they just could not hold him. They were able to convict him of larceny charges, however. He had apparently swindled his third wife's family out of $10,000 around the same time that his second wife went missing. So it's a little convoluted, but they got him on the larceny and he went to prison. Um, He was convicted of 15 years, but his sentence was suspended in 1962 and he was supposed to repay the money. Mm -hmm. And an interesting little aside here Anne Rule, one of our favorite um, kind of contributors to the true crime canon, (laughs) she devotes an entire section of her 2007 book, Smoke, Mirrors, and Murder, to him and the connection with that 1960 double murder. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Apparently, according to her in that book, investigators were even able to find dismembered human body parts in his septic tank related to that double homicide. Holy shit. But they were not able to prove that they were from the missing women, which, uh, I mean, again, we're talking about a really long time ago now, 60 years ago. So I, uh, you know, there's no DNA. You would still think that would be enough. (laughs) You would think, (laughs) but apparently not. So, according to Rule in her book, he was never charged in connection with the disappearance, and the Kings County prosecutor was reluctant to charge him at the time because they would, if he was not convicted, they would never be able to try him again, in essence. Which that does make sense, but it could have changed the trajectory on someone else's life. Truly, yeah. So in her book, she also mentions that in 1974, he married a woman named Terry. But of course, when she wrote that book, no one knew who Terry was or her relation to the Lady of the Dunes case. Yeah. More about Guy is that he is also the prime suspect in a June 1950 murder of a 28-year-old man named Henry Baird and his 17-year-old girlfriend, Barbara Jo Kelly. So that happened in California. Ten years later, he's in Seattle. Bodies start showing up. Another ten years, he's in Massachusetts. And now we have another body. God damn. Yeah. Unfortunately, Guy is now deceased. Well, unfortunately, fortunately. Yeah. He's deceased. And so... That's kind of where it stands right now. I think investigators are still working to draw the connections, but I think the inference here seems pretty clear. She was married to a bad dude, and whether she did or didn't know how bad he was, it sounds like she may have been living on the margins of society herself and had some various names, which, again, to your earlier point, the punishment for that is not death. And I guess at those days, you just like moved to a new state. Like, how could you, how could your spouse go missing now? Right, right. Well, I mean, I do think though, if, if you're part of a subset who is living on the margins, right? You know, so you don't have a, 
a, a desk job that you're supposed to show up to every day. So if you don't turn True. up to work, you're not, you know, you're not missing. I, I think it's like that. And you're not in touch with your family. So if you haven't talked to your mom in a couple of days, you know, so it's kind of, I think, living in this more kind of transient way to begin with means that there aren't those kind of checks and balances when you fall off the grid. You're definitely right. So investigation continues into this case, but I find it so fascinating. And, you know, I think there's a lot more to be learned here, but a couple of interesting asides. And another one um, is that early in the investigation, as I mentioned, there was some thought that perhaps she had been the victim of a mob hit because the hands and the teeth, those were kind of typical things. Now, if you go back to... Massachusetts history in the 70s, kind of the biggest baddie, particularly in the mob world, was a guy named Whitey Bulger, which most people have, have heard of. And so there was some speculation that she may have been someone associated with Whitey Bulger, who had also kind of disappeared around this time. Um, but there was no link that was ever able to be established. And now it looks like that is probably nothing more than just a theory that they once had. Mm -hmm. There's also, though, another early suspect that I think is worth mentioning, not because I think it's probably related now that we know the identity of the victim, but just as a sense of kind of the wacky, grisly stuff that's happening at any given time in an area There was a serial killer in the area at that same time, and his name is Tony Costa, and he was operating in that area. He was individually eliminated as part of the investigation, but just to think during this time, you've got Guy, just kind of a random baddie from wherever. You've got this kind of local serial killer who's operating in the area. And then you've got Whitey Bulger out of Boston who's doing God knows what and killing dozens and dozens of people for different reasons. But all of this in this really beautiful, idyllic, peaceful place where people go out of their way and spend a lot of money (laughs) to be (laughs) as a retreat. And all of this, you know, I mean, Provincetown isn't some, some place that comes to mind when you think of like gritty underbelly. It's a very kind of sunny, happy, vacation-y kind of spot and all within this kind of time period and location to have this many potential suspects that could be tied to an unidentified Mm -hmm. victim is just wild. I always think about Santa Cruz having two active serial killers at the same time in the 70s, which must have been a much smaller Santa Cruz at the time too yeah and just like yeah it's the place where you go to the beach boardwalk and like i know i know it's wild yeah wow that familial genetic testing it's incredible i mean i've had times where i've thought should i go back to school and do this because i love ancestry i think i've talked about it on here before but that's kind of a hobby of mine And I love bad guys. I mean, like, finding bad guys and true crime and stuff. I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah. But this is one that I think we will definitely see some culture come out of this one, especially now that we have identified the victim. 
Yeah, now that it's identified and most likely solved, Mm -hmm. but if they really can make the connection and identify this man as a serial killer, then, yeah, I think there's high potential for pop culture ripples to come. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that's what it looks like. Again, I think that the kind of cultural narrative about serial killers is that they look a particular way, right? They're this kind of lone wolf, deranged, driven by um, perverted sex-related things. But some of them were just like this guy who seems pretty humdrum, you know, domestic violence, repeat killer guy thing. I don't know. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. But, I mean, I think for whatever remains of her family, I have to assume this is a huge relief just to know. You know, I think most likely Mm -hmm. they had given up a long, long time ago that she was still alive. But to know, have some understanding of what happened and when, and I don't know, I would have to think that that not brings closure, but some kind of psychic relief of some kind. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll say it again. I really like peppering in this format occasionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get to talk about things that otherwise we wouldn't be able to cover. But listeners, hopefully you do too. And if you really liked it, go on and give one of them five-star reviews. <laughs> <laughs> and also send us your suggestions. So my idea actually came from a suggestion from my brother. So... Thank you, shout out to my brother Bill for the idea. Uh, and if you have cases that you want us to talk about, send us an email at mostfoulpod at gmail.com. And as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 